Welcome to Made for Profit, a podcast where we talk business in the shop and help you monetize as a maker. Each week, we cover business topics to help you grow your full-time business or your side hustle. We'll also bring you interviews from a variety of people winning in their space to share valuable business insights and life lessons. I'm Brad Rodriguez, a full-time content creator running FixThisBuildThat.com, and my co-host John Malecki runs a full-time furniture company in his content site, JohnMalecki.com. We've been growing our successful businesses online, and we want to bring you into the conversation and help you grow along with us. Welcome to episode 114. Now, today we're talking with a guy who's been working with the trades his whole life. Now, Mike Farrington cut his teeth in construction, working his way through school. And after a quick stint working a desk job, he went back to his love for building. Now, Mike has built a successful custom woodworking business over the last 15 years. And in the past two years, he's branched out to YouTube. So today, Mike's going to talk with us about how he sets up systems in his business to help his workflow, dealing with tire-kicking customers and his approach for getting deals on tools, and of course, what YouTube has meant to his business. Yeah, Mike has easily become one of my personal favorite YouTubers as he's a master of his craft and his brand. He completely owns it, not only in his work, but definitely on his channel, which just passed 100,000 subscribers, so big congrats there, Mike. Um, Definitely a channel worth checking out if you guys haven't heard of him. And I'm super impressed. We dive in this episode and he continues to talk about how he's growing his channel um, and he's showing off some just super impressive skills. Uh, I I can't say enough about this guy. I absolutely love what he's doing and I'm always super impressed by anyone who can balance a custom workload while making content consistently around it. I had a ton of fun on this one. This one was really enjoyable. Absolutely. And yes, big congrats, Mike, on the 100K milestone. That's awesome. But before we get into it, we do want to thank a new member that joined the MFP Patron Tribe this week. We had Sam Bazako. Sam, thank you, man. And if you want to join the show and get some awesome rewards, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash made for profit. But without further ado, here's our interview with Mike Farrington. All right, guys, welcome to another episode for an interview. Today we have Mike Farrington. Mike, welcome to Made for Profit, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. John, John was uh, the, the first one to, to turn me on to Mike's work. And uh, I'm excited to talk about some of your conversation about how you've done the business, because it's a little bit different than most of the folks we've had online. Either people are, are really hardcore furniture sellers or they are YouTubers and not a lot really do a great job of mixing it. So, uh, you know, without just completely diving into it, I wanted to give you your Give our audience who might not know you a little little background, you know, just who you are, what your channel is about and what your business is about. Um, Well, my name is Mike Farrington and um, I kind of live in two worlds right now. I have a YouTube channel that is a decent chunk of my income. And then I do woodworking professionally that could be finished carpentry, cabinetry or furniture and uh, a pretty decent mix of of all three of those. So, um, you know, I don't. I kind of know where I've been and I've, you know, I've worked in construction my entire life where I'm going is a little more blurry. Um, YouTube is obviously a neat opportunity. Um, but I still really like working for customers. I like the fact that I don't necessarily get to steer the ship. So the projects are more interesting than just what I could come up with on my own. And I think that makes for a reasonably interesting YouTube channel. At least a unique interest, you know, a unique YouTube channel. Yeah. So when did you start your custom furniture and when did you start your or, you know, just the the carpentry, the whole thing? You said you've been doing it your whole life, obviously. So, you know, when when did you pull the YouTube in? How long had you been doing, you know, the paid gig for other customers before you started that? Um, Well, I mean, I started in construction when I was a teenager as a high school job and um, I did it most of the way through college. I took a couple years off. And then when I graduated, I got a job. I got a degree, which was a waste. Uh, And then I got a job (laughs) using that degree. And Mm. by about lunch on the first day, I was like, I got to get out of (laughs) here. So I went back to the only thing I knew, which was construction. I kind of worked randomly for a few different contractors. And then I would do some side work for a couple of years. And then after that, I've been on my own ever since. So um, let's see, that would be about 15 years now. Wow. And um, and then the YouTube channel was about two, two ish years ago. Gotcha. OK, just kind of set the stage of OK. So so you were you had obviously built 
a bit, you know, 12 years, you know, over a decade of working that you, all your processes in place, we'll get into all that stuff, but you know, you had built a legitimate business and then decided to add on YouTube, you know, for whatever reason. I don't know why, like what, what, uh, I'll give you the reason. Yeah, it, uh, it's actually an interesting story. So, um, if you don't know this working alone in construction is tough, you have to work a ton of hours to make enough money. And I always worked 10 hour days, six days a week for years, forever. Um, and then we had a kid and that really cuts into your time. Uh, you know what I've I mean? I've been told that. I mean, that's yeah, a rumor. Yeah. John, yeah John's getting streets. married in a couple yeah, months and you know what happens after you get married. Let that, me assure you, know. you, if you don't have kids, you have no idea. <laughs> and, and I'm not complaining. It was just a change in life. And so then, uh, our, our kid was going to daycare. And if you also don't know this, you get sick about a hundred times when your kids start going to daycare. Hmm. And I got, actually got really sick. Um, and then, uh, I, I just couldn't work. I, I'm not, I'm not going to go into what I got, but I was sick for like a month and it was brutal. And, um, I started watching a bunch of YouTube videos. And up to that point, uh, I'd only watched YouTube for like, how do I, you know, wire a three-way connection or whatever. And I started watching some of the other channels and I realized that there were people producing content that was both entertaining and educating. And then one of them happened to mention that you can make money doing it. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but maybe I can give this a try. So effectively it was, it was an attempt to supplement my income. And I thought that I could kind of take on a night job, if that makes sense. So all of my editing and voiceovers and everything is always done after the workday is done. And that was a really nice way to just kind of make up for some of the lost hours of having kids. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's quite interesting. A lot of people look at that free time and they're like, how can I make some more cutting boards or turn a bowl or do something like that that facilitates the actual woodworking side of the business? And it's interesting to see you you saw YouTube as that opportunity, which is obviously an awesome opportunity because that's pretty much what Brad and I do mostly um, as yeah. content creators. But, you know, with it comes sort of like that that balance. Like, man, I, I was trying to I don't know how you do it. I was trying to sell and produce like custom stuff for a while while growing the YouTube and Instagram channels. And, yeah. and it just became so much like it, it, as far as balancing sponsors. And then like, I found it, I literally had to take a deep breath when you said that you enjoy working with clients. Cause I'm like the exact opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> and as, as yeah. are a lot of people, it's like, I do, I love bringing to life a, a client's dream. Like, I think that's so cool. The working with them to get to that point though, can be like, it could, you could lose years off of your life. So. It could be brutal. That's why I'm bald. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I lost so. all my hair. Um, you know what, uh, over the years, I've been doing this a long time now, over the years, I know how to pick clients now yeah. and the ones that give me any sort of inclination that they're going to be a problem, a sayonara. So, you know, maybe, maybe you should find a different person to, you know, to do this. So, so I think that's interesting. Let's vibe on that for a bit. Cause I've said that before on the show is like, th there are such things as bad clients, right? Like people, uh, you have to understand that when you're in business for yourself, especially if you want to be a woodworker or a contractor or something like that, you say yes at the beginning to pretty much everything. Like you got to pay the to bills, too much. keep the lights on. And you always say yeah. yes to too much. Well, like when did you start to see the point where you could start saying no and then driving the type of product you wanted to put out there um, and, and, and realizing that like not every dollar coming in the door is actually worth a dollar that you can, you know, you sometimes spend way too much time on things that aren't going to make you that much money. Well, um, in the beginning, yeah, I just said yes to everything, you know, doing fascia board replacements and just all kinds of wacky stuff. And, um, you know, I started making a little bit of money and pretty quickly, maybe within six months, I had a reasonable backlog. And, um, from that point forward, I've, I've always had a backlog. Sometimes it's been as much as a year. Sometimes it's been as little as, you know, a month. But um, and now I'm to a point where, you know, you just, you know, enough people, you get the phone starts ringing, you've worked with contractors, you've worked with designers, and um, the, there's sort of a flow of business and you can just kind of pick and choose what you want. And I know that's not like a necessarily a real tangible answer for somebody trying to start out. But what I can say is if you're good and you treat your customers good, that word will spread and it will get around. And then at some point, um, your business will be too much for you to handle. And that's when you can start picking and choosing clients. And in terms of how to pick and choose the right clients, uh, that's, that's a tough one. But what I can say is if they, if the first thing after that email where you send them a bid is, Oh, Hey man, can you do it for less? You're done. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, the, the, the price is the price. The price is non-negotiable. And in fact, if you want to negotiate the price, it goes up by 10%. 
that's rule number one. Um, you have to figure out how to price your work. And that's a lesson unto itself. When you figure out your price, you cannot do it for less than that. Um, that's, that just puts you out of business slowly. Um, I would rather go out of business trying to charge what I want to charge quickly than to just, you know, drag it out for years over years and just slowly not make enough money. Um, so that's, that's really, um, you know, kind of the, where, where I've gotten to where I am. And now I don't have like projects that I like want to do. I mean, some interest me more than others, but I really do like the variety. I like that. It could be a wall paneling project. It could be a wine cabinet. It could be a kitchen and everything in between. Um, I, the, the variety is nice for me. Yeah. I think that that's interesting. So like, a, was there a point where you stopped promoting the things you didn't want to be doing or was there ever like, cause I had a point where I was, I was having same thing. People asking me to replace window treatments and then come in and do, you know, flooring. And pretty much if you put carpenter or woodworker on something that any, they'll, they'll think you can do anything with any type of wood. Um, and, and I started gearing my product to, you know, being a lot more in the industrial sort of metal and wood combination style furniture, um, and, and moving towards a product I wanted to make. Did you ever, did you ever sort of see yourself hit a point where you're like, I want to be doing, you know, uh, cabinetry, uh, and, and fine woodworking. You do some, was it Comico as well? Like you do a lot of, uh, very, very high end fine furniture, but you don't just start, people don't just call you and go like, Hey, can I get a, can I get a, a, a Maloof style, you know, uh, rocker? Uh, I, I got a hundred bucks, 200, 250. Like, you, <laughs> yeah, right, you got, right. you, you kind of steer people to your product <laughs> line, right? Right. I couldn't even do an armrest for that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the fine furniture has always been a byproduct of other stuff that I've done for people trying to market and sell fine furniture is like borderline impossible. Um, unless you have some other way to supplement your income, a lot of fine furniture makers teach, they write, they have books, they have tools that they sell. It's something that, um, I think it needs to be supplemented to try and do that unto itself is very difficult. And even if that's just a YouTube channel, that's that, that would work too. Um, but the problem is if you marketed yourself that way, you're going to get 99 out of a hundred customers where the price tag for what you want to charge versus they, what, what they want to pay. It's literally 10 times too much for them. Hmm. So, and I kind of call those the tire kickers, um, you know, Hey, how much would it cost? And it's like, I don't even want to put the time into the bid until, you know, we've talked about a budget. Um, so to kind of explain my fine furniture projects, typically they come on the back of another project. I've done a kitchen for that customer. I've done a, you know, built-ins or I've installed just even some crown molding in, in their dining room or something that develops the relationship. And then I always have a few pieces laying around, um, that I say, Hey, well, you know, I did this. Are you interested in a, in a piece of furniture? And oftentimes I'll show them a picture and they'll say, Hey, wow, that's really neat, but it's too big. It's too small, whatever. And that's how I end up doing my fine furniture work. So it's, it's a pre I already have a relationship with the customer. They already know what I charge. And that makes the sales process tolerable, if that makes sense, because trying to like produce designs and give bids to people, you would just spend your entire time doing that. You wouldn't be able to make any furniture or make any money. So, um, though I, I can't say I build fine furniture exclusively, that's been my path to do the finer work, which I do definitely enjoy that. But you know what? There's nothing like, uh, you know, the smell of a construction site in the morning when, you know, the drywall's drying and all that stuff. I, I still like doing that work as well. So is that like when you said you, you have a, a pretty even mix across those, uh, you know, type of carpentry built ins and then fine furniture when you when you look at those um, in your pricing model, are those all fairly profitable in the same way or do no. you make a lot more in your in one versus the other? I could make more money just hanging crown molding. Um, or actually probably the most profitable thing would just be doing custom kitchens. Hmm. Um, that's, that's a tangible product that has resale value that adds value to a person's house. A piece of furniture right. is obviously tough. I make the least amount of money making pieces of furniture. Next would be like finished carpentry type of stuff. And then large scale remodel and built in projects are where I would make the most money hourly. But in terms of how I spend my time, it's probably one third, one third, one third. Gotcha. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and I just, I, I'm happy to do those projects. And if during that one third where I'm making fine furniture, I'm making less, that's just the sacrifice I make. And it's not really a sacrifice. That's, that's the compromise that I make with my business. Gotcha. And, and like, so I'm, I'm looking at your, 
your channel, Mike, and I see that you're, you know, maybe it looks like it's some in spurts, but that um, you're around one a month, maybe two a month uh, videos. So I would assume that you do not uh, do a video for every project that you do. No, maybe one in three. And how do you decide that? Like when you, so when, when you started, maybe we'll like walk through that. So you're, you're doing this thing. You said, okay, I want to do YouTube and I'm doing all these three things. Did you start when you started in mind where you're like, okay, like uh, here's what I think is more interesting. Like, how did you go about that when you thought, all right, because your, your work is so varied, you got a lot of choices and a lot of volume, you know, what, what did that process look like when you were thinking like, all right, cool. So what, you know, what do I want the Mike Farrington YouTube channel to look like? Um, yeah, that might, that's sort of putting the cart before the horse. Um, my first couple of videos were just, um, I, I actually, I, I told myself I'd do 10 and then I would see where I was at. And if I got no traction, I wasn't going to continue to do it. Um, I, I'm, I don't really have much of an interest necessarily to be like a YouTube star and have a big channel. Uh, I'm not saying that wouldn't be nice and the money would be great, but, um, it, originally I just thought I could make maybe a car payment would be nice. You know, I mean, geez, that, that would just be lovely. So I said, I'd make 10 videos and I would see where it would go from there. Um, and I also thought that if I didn't make any money from it, that would be fine. Um, I would make say maybe eight, 10, maybe even 20 videos of different projects. I would then use that as a sales tool. So if the videos didn't get any views, my kind of secondary goal would be to drive customers to those. So if somebody contacted me and they wanted a table built or they wanted something else built, I could say, well, Hey, look, hire me and here's how I'll do it for you. And I thought that might kind of convey quality and it might convey story and endear them to me as the builder. Um, so that, that was kind of my original goal. Um, I didn't set out to necessarily film any specific projects. Now that I'm here after, I think I've done like 37 or 38 videos. Now, um, I am sort of picking projects that might be a little more interesting videos and I'm timing things where I'm giving myself an extra day or two to move cameras around. And I mean, you guys know the time that it takes to film stuff. So, um, I guess uh, to answer your question is that that's kind of changing. It went from one goal and now it's going to another goal where I want to be paid to build the project, but I also want that project to be interesting enough to film it. Um, I'm not there yet. Um, but I'm, again, I'm, I'm getting to where I have some volume and I'm picking and choosing and put it, uh, trying to choose projects that'll make interesting videos. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think it, sense. I think it, yeah, that's, that's sort of like how we just flip the script and think about it as content creators. Like we think first, you know, what's more interesting and how can I make a video on that compared to, uh, what do I have in the backlog and which is video is best because it, it's, it's such a hard balance. Cause I mean, once you, what I've learned is once you start putting things out there, you know, like, like how many, you know, for instance, how many white built in cabinets do you think you can produce videos on? And, and it's not necessarily right. about the project all the time as in like, you know, are you giving, <clears throat> are you giving tips on building better built ins? Are you giving tips on installation? Are you talking about finish? Are you talking, and you start to pivot the strategy of the content itself and it kind of becomes its own entity, which I think you do a pretty good job of as you're starting to broaden the amount of what's happening on your channel in adding some, you know, some techniques here and there, uh, you're adding a little bit of uh, some shop projects, which which Brad and I know and Brad is quite familiar with. Can uh, you could build a channel on, right? Like people, that's right. what most of us look at YouTube for. Is like, hey, uh, excuse me, that's what a lot of woodworkers look at YouTube for. Is I, I want to build a new bench, you know? Like, how do I? <laughs> let me let me check out what the nine thousand other people right. on YouTube are building, um, kind of thing. And and then you just take it and put a subtle twist on it. Um, I think it's fan. I think it's wonderful to see that you're succeeding at it too, because I, I know that like you probably have made so many cabinets that you could do a cabinet or kitchen video every week almost, or every month at least, um, because they're in the pipeline, but you pick and choose strategically what you want to put out there as far as content goes. And to relate to our audience, like we know there's a lot of people out there that are building things that they not necessarily don't want to, but potentially don't want to be putting content out around. And I think it's a prime example of you don't have to. If you don't think that the content's strong or it's not something you want people knowing that you make so you don't have to build more of them down the line, you don't have to put content on around them. Um, and you can figure out ways to put content around the stuff that is near and dear to your heart that is kind of in the core of where you want your brand to be and and produce content around that and you can succeed. Like I, I think uh, it's it's something that when, when someone asks Brad and I, that tells us that they don't have enough projects or whatever to make content around, we're like, are you kidding? 
Because you could pretty much make content around anything. Like you could make content on just picking up lumber and turn it into just a, I just pick up lumber. That's all I do. Yeah. (laughs) Jump on social blade and look at some of the channels that it's a girl playing with a cat and she's got 22 million subscribers. And every time she puts out a video in the first day, it's 400,000 views. And it's like, you can make content around anything. Really the sky's the limit there. You just have to use your, your think piece. Yeah. And I think you've, I think you've done a great job from the beginning of positioning your content towards like somewhat of a common strategy. Like it's not so it's not, uh, it's, it's the voice has always been the same um, as well as like the messaging and the style of it. Like you've been 30, I think you said 36 videos in um, there's a ton of consistency and that's what I think keeps bringing people back. I think that's also what Brad's channel has the same draw for. It's very consistent in the voice, the message, the education. Um, and on the, on the other side of it, Mine's not mine. One, I'm doing a voiceover, then I'm doing a title overlay. Then I'm like in the middle of the woods by myself, like who knows? And that's kind of why my growth (laughs) has been all over the place. But for anyone that's like creating and selling custom work, that's looking to be on YouTube. I think Mike's a prime example of how you can do so and keep it interesting and succeed. Cause all of those are important. I love that you touched on earlier. I'm sort of that you were going to use YouTube as a platform, regardless if it succeeded or if it didn't on its own, to showcase your work. I've told people this hundreds of times that are asking for advice on selling. They're like, I wanted to do this and that and blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, do you have a catalog? What's your catalog look like? I was like, what does your competition's catalog look like? I was like, do you have a brochure? I was like, are you using video content to supplement your work? No, 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 no. And I'm like, wow. Like, I love that you said that you could use your YouTube content to supplement the experience for your customer. I just, I just think it's brilliant and, and something that's definitely a value add to that experience. When I first started in this industry, the first contractor that I got a job for when I was 16 or however old I was, uh, he literally had like a three ring binder with those like cellophane sheets or what, whatever they're made out of with yep. pictures in them. And he would go to the customer's house and say, Hey, have a look, see, uh, you know, and they were Polaroids or something. I mean, the pictures were horrible. Uh, you know, fast forward by the early two thousands, contractors were starting to get on board and pretty much everybody had a website. You put a little bit of text up there. You put uh, some pictures it fast forward to 2019. If you don't have a website with pictures and also video on that to showcase your, your product or projects or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's a bad deal. You, you got to get on that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, if you look at uh high end furniture, I say this a lot as high end furniture or, um, cabinetry or <clears throat> literally anything high end. It's almost as much about the experience for the customer as it is for that end product. Um, and I like, I always like to relate to the, to the market for cars just because it's something most of us have, have gone through that purchasing process. Um, and that if you can create some sort of, I don't know, value added to a value add to any experience for a client, you're going to be in a more favorable light and put, give yourself a better opportunity to close. Um, so yeah. I think that's a great point for any, for anyone making anything custom. Yeah. And video gives you an opportunity to tell a story. Like you need to make yourself lovable. So if you're going to make videos to sell your products, like, you know, consider that you are a personality and people want to hire you because they want to like you, you know, obviously you have to do good work. You have to position your work appropriately in terms of price and, mm. and quality and all that stuff. And, but then you also have to sell yourself and video really gives a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. It, it, well, I, what I'm interested in, like, I'm, I'm a big numbers guy. And it, what I find it, I'm, you know, I just kind of looked at your looking at your videos and what what a lot of, you know, like you said it like, hey, I'm, I'm going to try 10 and like see where I'm at. Uh, I mean, your very first video I believe was the Moxon Vice build. Was that the first one? Yeah. It was showing up. OK, so like that was got 162,000 views. With that, like that, you know, for anybody starting out their first video, that's like, oh, I mean, I would love for all my videos to get that much. Like, did was that um, immediate reception? Because sometimes YouTube does weird things. Did that come out of the gate strong or did it was it like a year later? Like, you know, t- talk to us because I, w- I want to kind of understand how like when you started doing it, um, the, it looks like I mean, all your videos have got great views. I mean, f- for like even your earlier ones like there, you know, I still have videos that that are, you know, maybe. 30,000 views or something um, that some of the older ones, but like most of your videos have very significant views. And how did that start? Like in the beginning, was that right away or did you see, you know, something that happened along the way that really gave you a bump? How did that work? 
Um, you know, you could probably answer that question better than me. I'll just share my experience. Uh, I am, I really like the numbers. I like to look at them. I like the stats, the graphs, all of it is neat colors. I've yet to really put anything together where the numbers have told me specifically what to do. Maybe I just haven't made enough videos or whatever, but to answer your question, um, I remember the first view I put up the video. It was three days later and that thing got one view in that one day. And then (laughs) the next day it was three views. And then the next day it was 10 and pretty quickly that first video got up to a point where it's getting, I don't know what it's getting like, you know, 200 a day or a hundred a day or whatever. And it's pretty much stayed there. And that's that's been been just a sustained growth over the course of a couple of years. I've only had one video that had a big spike and then flattened off to almost nothing. Basically all the rest of them, you you get the initial bump, right? And then it flattens out. And when they flatten out, they pretty much flatten out. And you'll, I'll see a little spike when I put out another video. Cause obviously the one video drags viewers to others. Yep. Um, but they, they pretty much kind of go up and wherever, like two weeks after I put them out, whatever it's getting, it's pretty, they, they pretty much seem to be just getting that off to infinity. So, right. um, which is cool. Uh, I'm able to kind of build, you know, as my catalog grows, obviously the, the revenues increases a little bit each month, which is nice. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, I think, I, I don't know. I think the first couple of videos, it was one or two views at first. And then maybe by video three or four, it would be, you know, in the hundreds a day. And then it's kind of grown, it's kind of grown from there. Yeah. Well, I, I love hearing that too, because I think that is the other kind of false impression that, and that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up is, is that, uh, you know, so maybe somebody's been woodworking and they're making custom furniture for five years and then they go and they look at it like, oh, I made his first video has 162,000 views. Oh, that's crazy. It's like, well, yeah, it had three in the first three days and right. that it, it just grows. And not all of them do that because, you know, like there's a lot of channels. And I think it just goes to talk about, you know, you you hit the nail on the head as far as obviously going into it. You already had the right mindset that of thinking about the project, but not only that, thinking about the personality and trying to pull people in so that you're obviously already trying to think about how can I engage people other than just the project? I'm going to, you know, incorporate, you know, I think we were talking about before the episode started, I'm going to incorporate uh, my kids into it. I'm going to incorporate some personal stuff, you know, like I was looking at some nice scenery shots from you being out in Colorado, like adding bits of interest that aren't just hardcore, like first you cut this, now you insert the dowel that, you know, it's like you have to have some interest for people to watch. And, uh, and obviously you're the idea that you can put the video out and then it just sustains growth means that people are coming back to it, right? It's, it's searchable. It's content that is evergreen and it's not mm-hmm. just, Hey, this is what I did with my cat today. Like you're talking about right. the cat videos, right? That it, like people are going to want to know, in five years, people are still going to want to know how to build a Mox and Vice and your videos out there now. And, and a couple hundred people are viewing it every day or whatever it looks like. So I really love hearing that, that it was a slow and steady growth and you didn't have this explosive growth that all of a sudden set your channel off, that yours has been more of a very sustained effort and approach to it. So uh, I love, I love hearing that. Very deliberate as well. So uh, I mentioned earlier that I said I'd do 10 videos and I'd see where I was at. I was lucky to, I got monetized just before they changed whatever. I don't know what the new rules are. I got monetized just before that. And that was actually, I think at like my eighth video. And so I said, well, I'll do a couple more and let's see, like, am I going to make 15 cents a day or is this going to kind of be worth my time? Right. And I'm not really super sure that it's totally worth all my time. Like, I don't think I've received all my back pay yet, but the channel is growing and things are doing okay. Um, you know, I'm sure it'd be nice if it was doing more, but I'm, I'm getting there. So that's, that's good. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was a very like just one foot in front of the other approach where I, you know, I, I just, I don't expect the videos to get a million views and to pay a ton of money. It's like each video gets a little bit of money each month. And if you add that up and you get to 30 videos and you get to 40 videos and 50 and so on, as long as you're making stuff that is interesting two years later, um, then, you know, Bob's your uncle, the, the book of business will build and, um, yeah, slowly getting better. Yeah. And that's the, the nice thing about, we always try to talk about, about the leverageability of any type of online content and evergreen content. Like when you sell that, that piece of furniture, that kitchen full of cabinets, you get a nice big paycheck and then you're done, right? Then you're on to the next client and you don't ever get paid for that again. You might get return work, but that specific piece of furniture will never pay you again unless you're repairing it. 
Whereas like the videos, <laughs> but because of their fault, their not because fault, of yours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but but the uh, you know that's the beauty of the online and the digital game is that it it does build and and so you've been doing this for two years. You've got thirty seven videos. In two more years, you'll have another thirty seven videos, and those first thirty seven will be paying you plus the next thirty seven. And like you said, it starts off you know that you can buy a cup of coffee, uh, then you can buy a lunch. You know, then next thing you know, you can do a car payment. And the next thing you know, you know, boom, you, you've got a mortgage payment. Like it right. all adds up slowly, but it's something that you can build over time. And it's very cool to see, you know, like you're realizing that and that that that's an expectation, too, that you're not trying to be a breakout star. This is like supplemental to your business so that when you do get sick because your kid's in daycare and you're, you know, out for a month that, yeah, they, I've got three kids, so I, I know exactly Ugh, what you mean. <laughs> you're, you're a brave soul. I got two and we are done. <laughs> we thought we were done and they were like, oh, I guess we weren't oh. done. Now yes. we're done. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, I, I, I love that idea of diversification. We just recorded another episode about, you know, kind of the long game of your business and diversifying and how can you do that? And, and you're, you're a perfect example of it. So just to kind of dovetail with that, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Uh, th- there was a while, uh, when my, my channel is, you know, you, you kind of go through peaks and valleys. You have times where you grow a little faster than others. There was a, there was a point where it was growing pretty quickly and I had the thought of, well, maybe I'll just do YouTube videos. And though I would never take that off the table, um, you know, things kind of flatten out and the growth isn't quite as good. And I I had one of those moments of, yeah, diversify. And in that thinking, I I realized that I don't know that I'm necessarily creative enough to just sit and make YouTube videos all day. I mean, I I guess I could just do bench builds like one a week and just put it in the dumpster and the next week build another (laughs) bench or whatever. But I guess I could do that. Um, But the thought that ran through my head was, yeah, it's really nice to be paid to build the project and then to be paid for the views of me building that project. And I also thought that doing custom work, it, it brings a, just a creative edge that I, I'm not creative enough to come up with on my own. And my house isn't big enough to do, you know, to sit and just do project after project on my own house. Um, so I, I, I really thought that it would be good to be diverse, to still do some custom work for people's to do shop project videos. Those do good. And then work on my own house and YouTube's really helping that along. And, um, it, it is challenging though. Cause I feel like, um, I'm spread a little thin. It would be nice to be able to concentrate on just one thing and really go after that one thing. But it seems that, that this, uh, this approach is, is working well a little bit in each of a few categories. Nice. So, so kind of segue from that. Have you, have you considered hiring or have you ever hired or has anything like that ever popped up? Cause you have been doing the custom game for a while. Well, I, I had employees and if you look at some of the tools, which actually I've sold most of my bigger tools. If you look at some of the tools in my shop, they're kind of like uh, massive, you know, well, they're, they're tools that, that would be in shops that have employees. Yes. So yeah, I, I played the employee game early and, um, I was really lucky to have a couple of good people who worked for me. And ultimately the answer is, um, I guess I don't play well with others. Mm. And, um, I, I think I would describe myself honestly as like an extreme introvert. And while I like being around people and, you know, friends and all that stuff, I, I cherish my alone time and I work alone in my shop all day, every day, and I still don't get enough alone time. (laughs) So, um, to answer your question, I may hire somebody, but I'd like to do it in a subcontract basis, like hire an editor or hire a cameraman to come in a couple days a week. Um, I also outsource some of my work on larger jobs. I have CNC guys cut my panels for me. Like if it's over 20 sheets, I'll have it cut. Um, and then sometimes I outsource the painting. Sometimes I outsource just other things. So I want to not have an employee as much as possible, but I don't mind the subcontractor relationship. So I might look into some of that, um, in the future. I have been doing that on the woodworking side of things since the start on the content side of things. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm maybe willing to give it a go. Nice. Uh, I think it's interesting. You, uh, even though I did, we didn't ask the question, you kind of talk about your systems, right? Like in you inherently look at a part of a project and you either say, I'm going to sub out this section or that section if I can, and where I can kind of make money back. So from watching your content and being a fan, like I, I could definitely tell, like you've got some pretty precise processes, right? Like you, you know, like, you know, you're going from this stage to that stage and stuff like what is a, what is kind of like a typical, uh, let's, let's just call it like a built in build look like for you. 
Um, and how, how hard have you worked on those systems? Cause I'm, I'm huge on the concept of that. And I think it's where a lot of people that are trying to quote unquote, make something with their hands, uh, fail is because their systems are bad and they give themselves no opportunity to, to win because you're like, Oh, I'm going to take on this dining table, this cabinet, this, I got to paint this, I got to finish that. And I'm just, you're all over the place and you're actually getting nothing done. Uh, and you just collapse under it. So the, I guess it just gives a little insight to that. Cause when you look at your shop, I can definitely tell that you've got some good systems. Yeah. Um, years of experience, you know, my first shop was tiny. It was a one car garage that actually my van wouldn't even fit in and it wouldn't fit in, in all three dimensions, length, width, and height <laughs> to, to, to kind of give that as, as a perspective. Um, you know, like I said, I started when I was a teenager and I worked, I was lucky to work for some people who were actually good businessmen and really knew what, and they were also good craftsmen. They knew what they were doing. So early on I was exposed to that. And, um, you know, John, you kind of alluded to it, but if you're building built-ins one time and then the next project's a table and the next project is you're going to go put some molding in. And then the next project is a room remodel where you're doing drywall, electrical plumbing, who knows what it is challenging to develop systems. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I try and think in terms of, um, just categories of work. And I try and stay away from the things that I don't like. And professionally, I don't do any of the other trades. I, I only do finished carpentry and, um, Woodwork. you know, built-ins and furniture and stuff. So if I'm on a job, um, that has drywall, electrical plumbing or anything, I hire people. If it's my own house, I do it all. Um, but I just can't make money and my insurance doesn't cover those other trades. Um, but in terms of systems, um, for furniture, yeah, you just kind of have to think through the process of solid wood, you know, milling, glue up, and then assembly, joinery, and all that stuff. For built-ins, um, yeah, it's, I, I start with plywood. Those get broken down and assembled into boxes. Then I turn my attention to the solid wood, which could be face frames and doors. And, um, you know, it's, I, I mean, this is probably not a great answer, but the, the real answer is it's really tough to have very precise systems being a guy who kind of does it all. Yep. So um, where I can, I develop systems. Uh, a good one would be my installation tools. That's a good example of where I took a look at where I was really struggling with time. If you spend an hour or two loading up before a job and an hour or two, you know, putting away after the job, that's, you know, at 50 bucks an hour, that's, that's a chunk of dough that you've wasted. Oh, yeah. So uh, rather than developing like very specific systems, I, I try and kind of work in, I, you know, modules or whatever you want to call it, where it's like, okay, here's installation stuff. Here's plywood processing stuff. Here's solid wood processing stuff. And I try and group them together. And as I think through the course of a project, I, I think in those terms, day one is I break the plywood down and I turn it into boxes. Day two is we build, assemble and sand face frames and put them on, um, so I, I think in those terms, I, I just, I think in chunks of work and, um, that's been the way that, um, has kept me flexible because I don't want to do the same thing over and over. Um, but allowed me to be as efficient as I can be for a, you know, a fully custom guy. And, and so what kind of materials are you holding on site? Cause I know there's another part of the process is material. Like we talked, uh, outside the show, I was asking about finish and stuff and you literally said like, Oh, it's 45 minutes to go get this one finish. So I use X or Y. But like, how much of that stuff do you keep on hand? Um, we we try to promote like, you know, if you're, I, I specifically said like, I like to work in white oak and walnut, and like, if I can for custom work, I carry as much white oak and walnut as I as I possibly can in the shop. And that way, I'm not sourcing it or looking for it all the time, and I know my costs, and then I push clients to it. Do you do you do anything like that? I kind of noticed you have a, a yeah. Serious so number. white paint, like white, some sort of white paint grade is very very trendy. So I keep poplar around, uh, and I buy that. The place that I buy from, they they give you breaks at a hundred board feet, two hundred board feet, and five hundred board feet. Mm -hmm. So I usually try and hit the two hundred or the five hundred mark uh, to get that lower cost, and it's a pretty decent like. I mean, it could be 30 cents a board foot off. Yeah, that's, that's so, um, I always buy those in larger chunks and then MDF. If I'm going to go buy MDF, I'm buying eight, 10 sheets of it. And I put it in the rack, mm -hmm. but everything else I don't stock So if someone orders something in cherry or walnut or whatever, I go and buy it at that time. I do have system for that. Um, my bidding process, um, have you guys ever heard of a software called Excel? Oh, <laughs> it's an old Microsoft program from like way back. Anyway, yeah, I have like a Lotus pretty one, two, three, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> I have a, um, <laughs> I have a pretty sophisticated Excel spreadsheet that I use to bid and I have uh, minimum costs and there is no project that I will not charge. Even if I have the stuff on hand, I charge two hours to go get materials that's built in. That's 
that's built into every single project. I don't care if I'm going to go change an outlet that's built in, um, which I wouldn't do that anyway, because my insurance doesn't cover it in a very real and legally binding way. I would never do electrical work professionally. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I have processes or, or kind of built in costs where it's two hours to buy materials. I have a two hour design time built in and I've got an hour to clean up shop. I have some minimums built in for sandpaper, tooling, wear, blade sharpening, and et cetera, um, that go into every project. So that kind of helps offset that loss of time. Again, that's trying to keep me as flexible as possible so I can take on different types of projects, but not lose my shirt and, you know, realize that I'm going to spend two hours going and picking up, you know, 50 board feet or whatever. God, I love it. I mean, it's literally like, (laughs) so we have a, we have a pricing guide on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with it and it essentially, we're just, we, we advocate to coach people up to cover literally everything you just said. And and we just bulk it as overhead because most people that want to sell custom stuff completely negate the concept of what overhead is and they just charge an hourly rate plus their materials and boom, that's it out the door. Um, so are, are do you, are you like a markup or a margin kind of guy? Like, or, or do you just have your expense sheet and know over time, like where your prices need to be in order to cover those and put some money in the pocket? Yeah. Time and materials. So I keep it simple. I don't like come up with a bid and then add, add on 10%. My hourly rate has everything built into it that I want to make. So, uh, this spreadsheet that I talked about has two columns with a bunch of lines in them. The one column is every single possible material that you could imagine. Um, I don't include in that consumables like sandpaper and glue that's in that built in chunk, but that would go to drawer slides, hinge plates, hinges. If there's two or three different types of sheet goods, you know, six, eight, one and 11 of the other kind, then the hardwoods built in and so forth. So I've got line items for everything on material side on the hourly side. I say it's four hours for plywood. It's three hours for face frames. Door building is X and I, everything gets marked out and I typically round up a little bit on everything. Um, the cost side of things on materials is retail. It's not what I pay. Yep. The customer, the customer pays retail. We'll mark up there. Um, and then, and then my hourly rate, like I said, has everything I need. It's got electrical, it's got it, just everything. I mean, to the nearest that I can calculate it, it has all of that built in and, um, that every time I have a line item, I put in half an hour, an hour, two hours, eight hours that adds up, put the two numbers together and that's my bid. And let me tell you something, the amount of time that you spend just adjusting your saws and cleaning up and emptying the dust collector. I mean, it takes you a while. I mean, how long does it take you to empty your dust collector? 15, 20 minutes. You have to be paid for that. And um, so, yeah, I I try as to the best of my ability to include all of that. And over the years, you, you, you refine that process. And I get a million emails from people, you know, Hey, Hey, you know, what, what should I do when I, you know, when I start or I'm bidding this project, you know, how much should I charge? And inevitably the numbers are half what they should be. Um, (laughs) but you know what? I I always tell people, I was like, there, there's no college for this. Like you kind of need to stub your toe a few times, um, before you start to realize how much you need to charge. And, um, so sometimes I don't correct people. I just kind of let them <laughs> just let them go. And then when they come back, you know, I say, Hey, send me an email when you're done and let's talk about it and we'll, we'll regroup and see what happened. And it, it, I've never had someone come back and say, Hey, I charge too much. <laughs> right. When, when you speaking of charging too much, when you, um, do you do the, do you flex with your backlog and how is your like price, uh, increases, how have those, worked as you've gone through the years and said, Oh yeah. Okay. You know, so a lot of people be like, okay, if I've got six months of backlog, then that next quote is, you know, not 50 bucks an hour, it's 60 bucks an hour or it's whatever, or it's just my adder of, okay, I'm going to add 10% on top of the whole thing because I know that I've already got backlog. Uh, and then as well as your hourly rate and, and how has that adjusted over the decade plus you've been doing this and, and, you know, trying to charge more for what you're doing, uh, based upon the quality of work that you're giving. Um, yeah, about every year I just kind of up at about five bucks an hour. Um, some, and then on some of the better years, it's maybe, maybe it's gone up 10 bucks an hour. Um, but I, as, as a, um, 
just a sign of thank you. If someone wants to wait for me six months, like I, I wouldn't raise the price on them. If I have a huge backlog, I, I might tack a little bit on because typically lumber goes up a little bit, but it right. wouldn't be a ton. So sort of the thank you for waiting for six months is, Hey, I'm going to give you a bid. If you're willing to pay me for it in six months, then we'll get to work. Um, and my payment structure is, uh, I only re- require a hundred dollar earnest money deposit that puts you in line. And then if there's a six month backlog in five and a half months, I'll give you a call and say, Hey, I'm going to need to collect another deposit because in two weeks I'm going to be starting on your project. And I either do 50, 50 from there or uh, one third, one third, one third, if it's a huge project. Gotcha. So given that, I, I like that idea of because whenever you get the quote, like it's usually really bad and, and kind of like the, the trades um, when you're getting, you know, painting or, or, you know, driveway servicing, like things like that, that it's like, you get the quotes and you're like, holy, like where it's like kind of commodity and labor based items. That's not fine furniture. And you're like, how can like how, how can pouring a concrete driveway this this you know, guy's quoting me three thousand and this guy's quoting me twelve thousand like it, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And the guy with the twelve thousand has got the backlog and he's like, I don't care. It's, it's kind of the yeah. the invitation. It's like, yeah, well, if you're going to pay me twelve grand, like I normally charge five grand for it. But if you're going to pay me twelve, I'll do it next week. <laughs> like, you know, we we can pull the you up invitation. to the front of the line if you double that up. So that that's I, I don't know that I've actually heard that, but I like it of being like, you know, hey, if, if you want the work from me, uh, I, I'm not going to upcharge you. This is over for like a thank you for saying like, yes, I will wait six months for your work. Yeah. Um, that, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. And uh, I like that. I think we all kind of learned that lesson in high school. You know, if if you just sort of command a higher price. It's just a certain amount of people who are going to like it. I, in, in downtimes, I've lowered my prices, uh, you know, years ago before I knew better, I would lower my prices. And let me tell you something, the hardest way to sell a job is to try and sell it for less money. And, uh, over the years, as I've gotten more confident in my work and the understanding of this business, uh, my prices go up and as my prices have gone up, my backlog has gone up and the amount of work I get to choose from has gone up. And y- yeah, it, it is very weird how the guy who quotes you 40 grand for the deck can't start for nine months. And the guy who quotes you, you know, 5,000 or something, he's like, yeah, I can start tomorrow. <laughs> I, I'm not sure why that is. I, I don't have a good answer, but boy, I'll tell you it is. So if you're having trouble selling jobs and you think lowering the price is the right way to go, I would try going the other direction by 50% and see what happens. That's interesting. Are you guys familiar with Peloton? It's like, a, it's a bike that you put in your house or working yeah. yep. out. The founder of it literally said, he's like, I had them priced at like a reasonable number. No one was buying them. So I put the most absurd price tag I could think of on them. And it's the most popular indoor bike on the planet now. And you're like, what? Everybody creates this concept of exclusivity, right? It creates this concept of like, oh, I'm getting like the higher end. And plus, if you're good, it's worth it. If you're good, you're getting you're now going to get validation on on the time you're putting into it. Um, and, I, and I think that's quite, quite important, especially when you're in the trades uh, of any sort or, or any any sort of craft. Is that like you're getting what you feel your value is out of the projects that you're creating for others and you're not working for less? Um, I, I hate I I'm, I'm very mad at myself for it and I continue to do it because I'm a glutton. But. I have a few clients that I still take on work for and I up the price of like the, and it's like small things, um, in bulk and I up the price when they come back in the door. Um, but I still do the work and I'm just like, Oh, it's just like, it's an, I like that number at the end. And then you do it and you're like, oh, I'll never do it again. And they come back. We're like, we need 25 more of these. And you're like, it's going to be an extra 20 bucks per. And you're like, oh, I still hate this. And you do it to yourself. And at the end, you're like, this is not worth my time. And I don't know why I still do it to myself, but like it, it's there. And I think it's quite it's much more common than you'd think to say yes and then hate yourself. Well, especially for doing on, it. on bulk stuff, right? Because on bulk stuff, mm-hmm. Uh, the grinding you on price. Yeah. yeah. And the numbers roll in your eyes though, but you're like, Oh, but that number is, yeah. is 20,000. Well, yeah, but you're making 2000 cutting boards for $10. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, no, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all set. Right. Yeah. yeah you know, it's funny. I, I've, I've definitely done that too, where you just glutton for, I'll never do this type of job again. And the two years goes by and something comes along and I look at it and I'm like, well, you know, I haven't done one. Um, in a while. This yeah. time will be different. 
Yeah, it's like you getting know, back I, together with an ex-girlfriend. You're like, this she can oh, make geez. it work this time. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No. <laughs> but, but she used to smack me with the frying pan. No, she, she'll change. She's better. No. She'll change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're all mature these, now. These, it's like <laughs> these displays are not going to suck anymore next time around. Uh, yeah. Even though I'm making them yeah. more complicated. Now, so that happens all of us. That's I, I love that you've I love that you've sort of touched on like the broad concept of pricing because um, you can die on it, right? I mean, like th- think about it. All the line items that you just listed off the top of your head you probably touched three percent of what actually needs to go into being covered um, as far as owning a any sort of business and those are the things that a lot of people don't consider that nickel dime you to death right like it's it's yep. not and even take time out of it it's even like you need to buy a new saw blade well what's paying for it like the business should be not out of your not out of your hourly salary and like if you need to do anything within the shop like empty your dust collector like i've by the way i have mine down to to less than 10 minutes um you know I got a doll. Yeah, I, but you have a nice dust collector. I, I got a dolly. There. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but you're right though. And like, and if you think about it, you could put all of that into an Excel sheet, right? And you could, that's where you start taking things like your wide belt sander, for instance, and you take the time allotted to do it by hand and then the time invested in the machine and you find that breaking point on which if you're using it, say this amount of jobs and you're, and it costs you say, you know, your own $50 an hour, can you take that and put it into another task on that job or shorten that time frame and invest it into a machine? Like that's how you get to those points. That's how you get to where, you know, you need a panel saw compared to a regular table saw, or as you've stated in a couple of your videos, like the, is a four by eight CNC on the docket in the future? Like, will you get to that scale? And the reason you do that is because you value your time on task and you're not just throwing a random number at something. Be like, I can make that in 10 hours. Give me $3,000. Like, come on, people. Like, this is, this is, it's much, it's much simpler in that you can put it in a sheet and literally go two columns like, like Mike does and figure out a much more solid and better price to make sure that you're not putting yourself behind the, behind the fold by charging less in order to just take on jobs. Yeah, I, I will definitely say that, that, um, you know, there's a million ways to look at pricing and there's, you know, what is it worth versus how long does it take and how much does it cost to make? And I, I'm not necessarily sure that I'm, I'm sophisticated enough to be able to, to speak on, on how to do either of those real good. It just over the years, I've come up with a system where I know I've listed the tasks. Every time I do something new, I write it down that goes into my task list for a particular job. And so I've just kind of honed in the process of figuring out how long it takes me to build something and adding that on. It's quite possible. I'm leaving money on the table by not saying I want, you know, 10,000 more bucks for this project. Um, but you know, I, I guess maybe I've gotten comfortable and maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe I, maybe I should challenge myself a little bit more, mm. but pricing is tough. Pricing is. is, is brutally tough. And, um, you know, you just gotta, you have to keep at it, it, it and it's constant. You don't just get there and then you're done. You get better at it. But even, even to this day, somebody comes at me with something a little different. Um, if there's a different paint color and it's going to require more time, more coats or something like that. I mean, th- these are all little itty bitty things and I'm kind of picking at the margins cause I, I think I have the bulk of it down, but even still, you, you know, little things to consider. I'm constantly honing that process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and every time you get burned, I mean, that, that's kind of the nature of business, right? As you said, like you, you, and giving those folks or not giving them the total amount of, of input that you may have could, because they're going to learn it better when it blows up in their face, right? They're going to be like, well, I'm never going to do that again. Uh, right. Versus like when somebody just tells you, oh, you should do, they're like, oh yeah, okay, 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 okay. They agree. That's always, right? That failing is always the best lesson giver uh, because in, you know, the harder the fail, the, the bigger the lesson and the more it hurts and the more you won't forget it, right? It's like those little things. If you really like those little projects that you hate to do, but you do them over again, it's like, well, you know, like that's not a failure. It's just like you're winning a little bit less. But when you really <laughs> make that bad decision, that's when you're like, you're yeah, I'm never doing less. that again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm so. going to try to not win a little bit less in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that could be a, uh, that's an MFP t-shirt right there. Winning a little yeah. less. Hashtag. Don't win a little less. Yeah. So, so Mike, looking at kind of, as we start coming up towards the hour, as, as you've, as you've gotten into the online content, um, how has it changed how you've worked and like how you document the process as far as, as going through and, you know, maybe just like any, any things that you've learned along the way, as you've been doing like now filming 
Uh, do you do, you know, have you worried more about how you process lumber, how you do things so that you can get those camera moves and, and all that? How has that changed your workflow? Well, uh, to be critical first, uh, filming yourself and then watching yourself do something is, is not like the easiest thing at first. Cause you, the, all I thought of for the first like five videos was, Oh my God, I am the stupidest person on planet earth. What am I doing right now? <laughs> um, so it's kind of allowed me to take a critical look at some of the things that I do, which is good. Um, so I've changed, I've, I've changed some things like just for example, how to put things on a cart. If you have 50 parts that you need to sand, and you take one off a cart, you sand it, you put it back on the cart. And like, if you're walking around the cart every time, just little things like that, I've kind of honed in on a little bit. So that's a good thing. Um, I think I've gained some efficiencies, um, in terms of, um, at what it kind of does to the overall arc of a project, it slows it down a little bit. Um, but not a lot. Uh, I, I like I said, I kind of know what I'm doing here. So as I'm finishing up a task, I, I already know what I'm going to do next. And I'm kind of thinking, okay, where does the camera need to be? for the next shot. So, you know, I'll swivel it around, change the lens or whatever. Um, but as my channel grows, I I'm increasingly wanted, wanting to take more time on the videos, maybe do some macro shots, slow it down a bit and kind of show a little technique for something specific versus just setting up a camera and letting it go and then chopping that together. So, um, yeah, currently I would say it's slowing me down a little bit, but I think that that sacrifice is rewarded by uh, a little bit more interesting video with some more details. When you when you started shooting, uh, did you have any inkling? Because from from just from what you just said, I I can tell that you enjoy the process of making the video. Just oh, because, yeah. like, I heard two things: which are changing lenses, which I never do, and uh, <laughs> you know, mac, macro shots uh, that you know you're taking the extra time. So before you started doing YouTube, did did you have any experience in audio video? Did did you have an inkling like, oh, that would be fun, or did you have no idea what you're doing and just learned? online like most of us so if you're so inclined go back and watch my first video at that point in time i didn't know what autofocus was i didn't know what manual settings were i didn't know what f-stops were i didn't know what frame rates were i didn't know anything yeah no i knew nothing of cameras um i took a um a semester of photo in high school like i, I think we all did that but i didn't actually go to that class uh, you know, like, yeah, I mean, you just sort of just do what you need to do to pass that. So I, I really had no camera experience. Um, and to be honest, that's really created a bit of a spark for me. I, I, in, in terms of my work and lighting and just all that stuff, it is a fun challenge. And just as I always try to improve with my woodworking, I'm, I, I really am working hard. It might not show, but I'm working hard on trying to get better with cameras and angles and editing and lighting and all that stuff. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's fun, but no, I started very green. I knew nothing. Gotcha. And I think that's that's kind of the interesting thing is that some people take to it and then some people hate it. Right. They're like this. I hate this. And then but it's also I think as a lot of as us as 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 craftsmen and craftswomen and and creators that you're now creating something new. It's digital. Right. It's not like I'm not creating a piece of furniture. I'm creating a piece of content. I'm creating a film. I'm creating a story. I'm creating a piece of of learning for somebody else an experience and that there's something in that. And that's why, like when I first started doing it, it wasn't as much as the camera angles. And I'm still same, same with you. I'm still trying to learn it all. I, I knew the technical stuff pretty quickly because I did used to shoot some film. And so I, I knew, you know, kind of ISO f-stop, all that stuff. But but how it came into video was new to me. But the part that I liked and I enjoyed uh, more was like the editing and how you could make that flow through. And, and uh, I actually had I, I go back and I watch it every every few months or so. Um I had an opportunity to go interview Alf Sharp. I don't know if you know who Alf Sharp is. He's a great, great woodworker. Um, he's he does a lot of period furniture and he's local in, in Tennessee here in Middle Tennessee. And I had a chance to go film him and do an interview and talk to him about his career and about all these things that he's done. And like that was what it's still like I go back and watch that video and I made this like documentary basically. And, and I don't do that kind of stuff anymore, but it was just this opportunity and I did it. It was with with Powermatic. And I had the most fun. Like I, that's still like, I'm so still so super proud of that. And it was like nothing I've, uh, you know, I was like, I don't want to make documentaries, but I was like, man, this is so cool. Like having this and, and adding the music to it. It's like my videos, I don't do music at all. I just do voiceovers in my own videos. And, but it was really fun to do that. So I, I kind of, I could kind of hear that come out in your voice that you really enjoyed you know, that it, it's going to, so I'm going to be really interested to see where your channel goes. Cause that's a whole rabbit hole too. Like yep. you could spend more time, 
you know, the fan, we had uh, Paul Jackman on, if you ever watched his video, Jackman works. Yep. He, he spends, you know, t- two to three days in the edit process. Yeah. yeah. Right? So he's kind of gone that hole, but you know, obviously at that point, his, his videos are very well time. put together. They, they are fantastic. Yeah. But uh, I, I love hearing that your consideration of like, oh, you know, this is something new and exciting. And maybe as that transition changes and you get the next hundred thousand followers in the next, you know, that that becomes more money and that that becomes more something you do. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, you, you have all these clips, like if it's 50 clips or hundred clips or 200 clips, you copy paste them all into iMovie and there's just this huge mass of garbage. And I remember the first time I sat down kind of looking at this going, and, and I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to get through this. So you kind of go through and you say, what's the interesting part of this clip? What's the interesting part of this clip? And that's cool. That's kind of carving it down. But I, the, the spark for me for editing came the first time I cut two completely different clips together. Like if you're doing the same thing eight times and you film it from four different directions, you can kind of clip it all together to make it look like you're doing one thing. The first time I did that, I like felt like a magician. I was like, yes. oh my God, that looks so cool. So yeah, I, I do very much enjoy the editing process. It, it is building, but it's building, you know, a, a digital product. I mean, I don't know how else to, how else to describe that, but yeah, I, I like the, the digital build. That is fun. It's quite yeah. fun. Quite fun. Yeah, I think a lot of people get pulled into that. So um, one thing we like to to ask our guest is uh, is a piece of advice. And you've obviously got a varied background and a lot of experience in the woodworking. So anything, uh, whether it's just regular business or, or going to the content game, you know, what would you what would be a takeaway that you'd like to leave with the audience that something that you've learned over the years? Well, uh, I, I do listen to your guys' show fairly regularly. Um, so I knew this question was coming and to be honest, I've been, I, this has been grinding on me now for like a week. Like, what am I, how am I going to answer <laughs> yes, this question? The pressure of MFB. Yeah. I mean, my heart's pounding right now. <laughs> um, so I don't know that I necessarily feel qualified to give any sort of content creation advice. So I'm going to go the other way in terms of the, the professional woodworking side of things. Although I think this advice would probably be applicable to content creation as well. Um, the key that's kept me good for all these years, even through the huge downturn that we had in 2008, 9, 10 and all that, um, what's kept me good is keeping my overhead low. So my shop has always been on my property. When I bought my, this house, uh, I bought my shop as well. So as I pay rent, I'm paying mortgage. And, um, I do that across the board through my whole business. I, I rarely buy new tools, almost never. I shop on Craigslist. I look for deals. I keep my overhead low. I don't take on any debt. My business has zero debt and will never have debt. So, um, keep, just, just keep your overhead low. And then if you get sick, if you hurt your left hand, I smashed my left hand and couldn't work for a while. Um, you'll be okay. So that's, that's what I would suggest. And I guess if you're making videos, like don't go out and finance a 10,000 buck camera, like, you know, you know, maybe save up for it and pay for it, you know, at some point down the line. So yeah, just, just keep your expenses as low as possible. Love it. I love that. Right. I knew, I that knew is, you'd that love just that hits one. me right now, right. Like right in the fields. I'm like, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is just, that is like such sage business advice. The amount of businesses that fail because of debt is is huge i mean it, it is so huge because everybody you know they, they start and 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 also the amount of you know john and i talk to a lot of woodworkers and like everybody wants that fancy new saw stop or the new xyz or the 12 inch joiner or the huge drill press and it's like those are all great things but guess what you can also buy those used i i spent two and a half years waiting to buy a saw stop and i ended up getting mine you know off craigslist for a third of new and you know, I, I still haven't found that deal yet. As you know, I don't have a stop <laughs> a saw stop and I want one. Yeah. Um, you know, during the downturn, a lot of shops went under and uh, people were begging me to take their tools. I mean, just almost paying nothing for them because they'd just taken out 10 loans. They could never afford that. Even during the good times they were struggling, let alone during the bad times. So yeah, use tools and, and keep your overhead low and low debt. If you're going to finance something, have a very specific plan of how you're going to pay it off. And I, I do the same thing. Actually, I want to get a new sliding table saw. I want to get mine's eight foot. I want to get a 10 foot. I've been shopping for one for like three years now. Patience, you know, it'll pay off eventually. My goodness. That's a monster saw. That's so much. But yeah. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> awesome advice. Uh, this is, this show has been fantastic. One of my, I'm, I'm so geeked. I love it. I love seeing someone win. That's doing it's, it's genuinely hard what you're doing and I love seeing someone winning doing it. So it is, you, man. it is a challenge for sure. Thank you. 
All right. Well, we loved having you on the show, Mike, and uh, we appreciate it. Thanks for sharing all the advice, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Mike is such a meticulous dude. Uh, Just I can just hear it. Like as we're sitting there talking, he's working through every system he has. He's got a plan for everything. And he is just so in the groove. I absolutely love hearing from folks that are in that groove and just have tuned in their business uh, like Mike has. Yeah, I, I think it was like the yeah, the most impressive part for me is that it reflects throughout his content. I think that's so cool when you're watching him make a cabinet, how like how precise something as far as like how he's cutting his joinery is um, really, really awesome channel. I love seeing him. He actually has like a lot of skills outside of just making cabinetry. So definitely check him out. Um, I'm he inspires the crap out of me. Like I'm just building stuff that I've never built before watching Mike's channel and picking up tips and whatnot. Um, and, and I think he's a fantastic person. Great, great dad joke personality oh, too. That, that was a lot, of, jokes, that was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. I feel like we could sit and just riff on dad jokes, me and Mike, just dry dad jokes yeah, back I, and forth. I mean, I'm only a dog dad at the moment, but like it really inspires me to want to get more dad. Uh, it's coming, bro. It's coming. <laughs> Don't worry about that. So if you want to hear more about Mike, you can head over to madeforprofit.com forward slash episode 114 we'll have links to his website his youtube channel and everything else that we can gather up on him so go check that out yeah and if you want to follow mike on instagram you can head on over to at made for profit where we will have him tagged in link in this show's uh post on our main feed absolutely all right right now we're going to head over to our after show and go hang out with our patrons we'll catch you guys next week let's do it